From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why small business is backing new climate disaster laws, renewable energy's best and brightest, a preview of COP22, and why oil and gas may be the solution to climate change. We're drilling deep this week on 350. It's October 28th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Good day, Lauren. <laughs> Good day, Joel. How's it going? <laughs> Just went all Aussie on you right there. Yeah, getting formal today. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> just a quick program note. I mean, I was looking at the calendar, and this is episode 50. We took uh, two or three weeks off over the last 12 months just for some August and I think uh, Christmas holiday vacation. So if you do the math, we've hit the one-year mark on this podcast. So uh, just wanted to say that, and congratulations, and thank you. Yeah, definitely. It's been a good time. I think we've done Paris, Hawaii, Silicon Valley, pretty good variety. So we'll see what's to come in the next year. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I keep hearing as I travel, um, people are, you know, we're building this nice audience. People are saying you've become part of my week. Uh, I, I run or, or drive or whatever, listen to the podcast. And it's really gratifying that people, people uh, have made this a part of their regular editorial diet. So uh, thank you all for doing that. And um, uh, meanwhile, Lauren, you, you've been off on this adventure of your own. Um, you went back to school. I think we talked about that a, a few months ago. Um, how's that going? Tell us, remind people what you're doing and how's it going? Yeah, I'm in the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, just down the road from our headquarters in Oakland, which is nice and convenient. Um, but I'm focused on investigative reporting, looking at how you can pair writing, audio, video, all sorts of things to tell complicated stories that might otherwise get a little bogged down in the weeds. Um, and speaking of that, literally, we are also jumping into election season right now. Um, and I'm going to be heavily focused on Proposition 64, which is the marijuana legalization bill in California. Lots of interesting stuff. Um, but there's job implications because right now so many of those jobs are sort of under the table, but also environmental. Uh, there, we've seen water wars already bubbling up in areas of the state where cultivation is big. Um, and I've, I'm already seeing the projections that we're supposed to be in for uh, another dry winter, uh, no, no El Nino this year. So how, how the industry could be affected by that, we'll definitely be interested to see. So I'll uh, be sure to keep you all up to date. Well, this is sort of comes full circle. I mean, I, when I was at Berkeley Journalism School, I was studying cannabis too, but it wasn't part of the official curriculum. <laughs> Extra credit? <laughs> I guess. But I, I did get high marks, so, you know. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the Week in Review. Well, 
Well, we're coming up on the one-year mark from the COP21 Paris climate talks, and I would have to say that that's well reflected in our coverage this week. It's sort of climate, 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 energy, energy, energy. And Joel, you had a piece that was right at the nexus of those worlds this week on how the oil and gas industry can help save the world. Yeah. I have to say, I didn't expect to see that headline necessarily. Certainly not on GreenViz. Um, well, yeah, this comes right uh, adapted from a lot of the thinking we've been doing with uh, the book that I co-authored that came out back in June, um, The New Grand Strategy. Uh, and it's looking at uh, you know, sort of the big idea here of, of how we do what we call a feedstock shift, which is the fact that most of, uh, of, of obviously, the, our automotive and transportation fuels come out of oil, and we all know that we've sort of uh, exceeding our carbon budget, that we can only burn about a fifth of the untapped oil and gas reserves that are currently on the books of publicly traded companies and, and state-owned enterprises around the world. And um, and that's what the science tells us. And so there's this uh, keep it in the ground campaign, which is they don't uh, don't uh, you know bring it up and, and and burn it and and that's a great thing from a science and and um, climate perspective but it's kind of a problem economically because there's trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth and and a lot of that's in all of our uh, retirement accounts and uh, you know if we did stop that just cold we would probably crash the global economy so. We looked at this and said, well, it's, you know, already about 20%, almost 20% of all the oil that's pulled out of the ground is, is used to build, not burn. So it's turned into plastics and carbon fibers and, and other advanced materials, which are, uh, you know, coming into the fore. We're seeing, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles now made from carbon fiber instead of from steel and aluminum and, and, and other materials, which, you know, have a higher, uh, carbon and water input and climate uh, impact. So we said, what if we can flip that? And, and 80% of oil and gas going to materials feedstocks. Um, and so we sort of set out a scenario there, which, uh, as I said, we did in the book as well to look at how, how do we do that? And are there signs of sort of this shift underway already? Particular companies, you point to industries like cement, where this transition may already be happening. Well, as always with these big shifts, there's uh, there's uh, leadership companies that are all for it, and and a lot of resistance, um, you know, from the incumbents who are pretty happy making the money that they're making. And and let me be clear, this is not this is it's 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 more than an idea that there's some things bubbling up, but this is hardly a movement yet, and that's. The bit why we presented this as sort of a big idea in the book. But yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, companies like Shell. So Shell did something really interesting. They hired uh, or elevated, promoted somebody within the company, Neil Golightly, to the role of vice president for energy transition strategy. I uh, started that role just uh, last month in September. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you think about that as an oil company? What is an energy transition strategy? Does it get you off oil? And if so, how quickly? Um, you've got the, the Dow's and DuPonts that are uh, the ones that are leading this uh, effort to turn uh, hydrocarbons into advanced materials. And so they're, they're all for this. And uh, so there's some interesting players in here. We've been talking to some of them. And as I said, we're just getting going. 
Yeah, from a financial perspective, it also uh, it brings to mind a topic I haven't been hearing as much about in the last few weeks, which is stranded assets or this idea of what to do with companies that have large holdings of, of oil and gas reserves already. Um, is it clear yet sort of uh, the economic case for the, the feedstock transition? Not really, because the incentives uh, still are there to you know keep pumping oil and keep you know, putting it in cars and trucks and airplanes. And um, we haven't really, you know, set this in motion uh, in any significant way. It's still very much at the margins. I mean, that's the whole idea of the grand strategy that we put forth in the book is, and this is only one small part of it, or it's a significant one, but it is just one one of many things that we see that can be done that, that take us uh, to uh, pretty far down the path uh, on a sustainability front while uh, actually growing the economy, shifting to where we need to be aligning the science and the economy and security issues, uh, putting those all together. But, you know, we, we've, we've, there's a lot of things that need to fall into place. But, you know, you, you could see, um, you know, China or others that have, uh, you know, they're looking at uh, security issues at a time of rising you know, tensions in oil transit routes, uh, where, you know, where the ships go, uh, in the Middle East, obviously, these are huge issues. And, and, and so security could drive this as much as, um, as climate or anything else. It's a huge puzzle to put together how you do this, how you do this at the scale, scope and speed that it needs to happen. One piece of the climate risk puzzle that we're starting to hear more about is insurance, which our senior writer, Barbara Grady, also took a look at this week. Uh, there's a new analysis out by Ceres on ranking insurers, basically, on how they do or don't consider climate risk in their operations. Um, so they rated 22 insurers out of about 148 large insurers, uh, companies like Liberty Mutual, Nationwide Travelers, Prudential, so not small players, um, and, and said that they are, in fact, taking climate risk into consideration. But like you're saying, uh, with the rest of the industry, there is still a continued overall lack of focus in addressing. And, and this is, it's both a new story and an old story. I mean, I remember writing about climate change in the insurance industry um, five, even 10 years ago. Uh, because there, there have been some insurance companies, particularly the reinsurance companies, Munich Re, um, for example, um, that and Swiss Re, that have been thinking about this. These are the ones that insure the insurers, and um, you know they are definitely thinking about a world where there's more, you know, catastrophic and uh, extreme weather and and other big risks that would have uh, you know big impacts. But the reality is, even for a big weather event like a Hurricane Matthew or Superstorm Super Storm Sandy, the, the, the payouts are still fairly small, believe it or not. And um, they have reserves set aside to cover these things. So it's still, you know, just slightly more than noise for them. Obviously, if they start coming at greater and greater frequency, um, they'll be, you know, it'll be a different story. But... Um, you know, there's not really, just to use that old expression that's still relevant here, a burning platform. There, there really isn't something that's, you know, igniting this where they say we've got to act now. They're really looking out five or 10 or 20 years and starting to, uh, to think about the shifting nature of risk 
and um, how to adjust their their portfolios and adjust their policies and issue new kinds of policies. Uh, but obviously, organizations like Ceres, which does amazing work in in pushing investors and financial services uh, companies like the insurance industry, as well as banks and, and others, along a path of looking at climate change and trying to make change from that perspective, um, they're, they're, they think there's more urgency there, and uh, and and that's uh, behind this report. I will also say that another area where insurance is starting to come up more is this whole conversation around resilient cities. Uh, I know there are groups like like architecture firms, like Perkins and Will, is one I've had a conversation about to this effect, where they're bringing in insurers as they think about designing bil- buildings or green infrastructure that will stand up a little bit better to more volatile weather uh, and more extreme conditions. Uh, that we know are more likely in a warming world. Um, so I think this is another area where potentially looking at localized examples of sort of in- interesting pilots that have potential to scale will be good. But agreed, like you're saying, that this this is an issue that uh, probably going to be several more years out on the horizon. And and this is another area that you just mentioned that Ceres is involved with. They they've been looking at. You know, how do you, uh, how does the insurance, insurance industry reduce its losses and promote the maintenance of insurability, which basically means, uh, creating more resilient infrastructure inside cities? Um, this has become an area for them because obviously this is where people are moving to. Um, and, uh, they've, they've held some workshops, uh, in the U.S. and Canada bringing together the insurance industry with city stakeholders from, Boston, San Diego, Toronto, and, and other cities, and to trying to create a systematic understanding of, of, of what a collaboration could look like to reduce the risks and increase the performance and value of, of climate-vulnerable cities. At the international level, though, we are gearing up, hard to believe, for COP22. Uh, so the UN climate talks will head to Marrakesh this year. And one of the topics that I know people are already starting to, to try to, to weigh how it might shake out is this perennial issue of climate finance. Um, so our friends at the World Resources Institute contributed a piece this week on five climate finance topics to watch at COP22 in Marrakesh. Um, specifically looking at mobilizing this $100 billion in climate finance for developing countries by 2020 um, that was discussed in Paris last December, Uh, but also determining some of the underlying questions like what actually counts as climate finance, because as we know, um, some of the areas for making a dent in emissions aren't always as direct as you might think. And there's also a tendency of uh, when you're trying to get to a, a number like a hundred billion dollars a year of, of, which is the climate finance commitment from COP21, you know, to start to roll into that number, uh, things that you would have been doing anyway, uh, and, um, that don't have what, what, what they call additionality. This wouldn't have existed if we hadn't done it. And so as opposed to something that we would have done anyway, now we're just going to count it as this. And sometimes uh, credibly and sometimes not so credibly. And so there's just a lot of, uh, of, of counting and understanding, you know, what's really uh, – what are the different components of climate finance would you be taking here, taking in consideration here and understanding that clearly and, and then ultimately pointing it in a direction that can make a difference. 
Yeah, there's also some uh, interesting circularity with the event going back to Marrakesh because um, we had an adaptation fund created in 2001 when COP was held in Marrakesh previously to serve the Kyoto Protocol. Um, And now with that commitment period ending in 2020, that fund's future is uncertain, as the authors of this point of this piece point out. Um, So I think there's also sort of the precedent of maybe not being able to uh, transparently and effectively organize these large scale climate finance endeavors. So figuring out maybe where to tweak the model on this could be interesting. Um, And also with what we saw in Paris with the private sector being much more involved in civil society, um, would be curious to see if there, there are any thoughts on potential business models or anything bubbling up there. No one said it was going to be easy, and I think this is proving that point. people may be focused on election season at the moment, but we had a thoughtful piece this week that focused on small businesses backing new climate disaster legislation. That article appeared as part of our monthly column, Policy Matters, uh, which is authored by our friends over at the American Sustainable Business Council. So to give us a little bit better lay of the land of all things policy, uh, Richard Eidlin, the co-founder and vice president of policy and campaigns for the American Sustainable Business Council, joins us now. He's worked for 30 years on sustainability, social entrepreneurship, policy, and CSR in both the public and private sectors. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Lauren, good morning. Thanks. All right. So let's jump right in. For those who might not be familiar, can you just give us a little bit of background about the work of the American Sustainable Business Council? Absolutely. So we were formed in the summer of 2009 and are a national business policy organization. We focus on making the business case for what we consider to be a sustainable economy. And that includes working on issues ranging from climate change to tax reform to sustainable ag to high road workplace practices. And so we take a broad view when we refer to the the term sustainability and we work at the federal as well as the state level. Great. And as I mentioned, uh, the story we ran this week focused on climate risk and small business. Uh, Can you just give us a quick overview of what's happening in, in that realm in the legislature at the moment? Yeah, well, there are a number of interesting initiatives, both at the federal and, and state level across the country. And the, the one that we wrote about in, in Green Biz most recently was an effort by Representative Corbello from Southern Florida, from the Miami area. And we thought that was particularly interesting because Congressman Corbello is, um, is a Republican and is part of a what we think is a growing um interest group in the Republican Party concerned about addressing climate change. And some of the language in his bill on mitigation uh, is different than what Democrats would use. So we've, so he talks about persistent flooding, chronic flooding, extreme weather, severe weather. 
and some of the solutions that he identifies are really bipartisan in nature. So what we found particularly interesting about his bill was that it calls for FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to play an active role in helping communities prepare for the likelihood of more extreme weather caused by climate change. And it also provides some grants for communities to prepare. And all of this, we think, is really good news, uh, not only in terms of recognizing that there is a serious risk that businesses are facing, but also in terms of moving members of both parties uh, to address this, this challenge to our economy. And to that end, sort of the, the balance between federal and localized action, I, I was curious to see the, um, or I was interested to see the examples in the piece that sort of mentioned uh, localities like Miami that are going ahead and taking resilience in some ways into their own hands, like installing new right. pumps. There are cities like New Orleans looking a lot at green infrastructure. What are you seeing there in terms of the, the mesh of local state federal movement? Yeah, it's a great question, and and this bill really hits that um, right on the head because <clears throat> it calls for communities to adopt uh, more uh, contemporary and up, update their building codes. And what we have found in many coastal communities, the building codes are really inadequate to address the increasing uh, um, uh, strength of, of hurricanes. And so the bill requires that communities that want to access federal grants and work with FEMA on resiliency efforts go ahead and actually update their building codes. And that's a pretty radical idea, uh, I I think, for the federal government to be requiring that, but it is consistent with what many states are doing already, particularly in coastal communities, be it in Texas or uh, on the eastern seaboard or in Florida or uh, on the Pacific Northwest, where communities are realizing that as extreme weather increases, they need to protect their physical assets. That's particularly important when you think about businesses as a key player you know, in, in generating jobs and creating uh, economic activity. So extreme weather incidents increasingly, um, when they hit, are driving pro- businesses out of operation reduce productivity, lost wages, et cetera, et cetera. So communities are stepping up across the country and uh, starting to invest in hardening their infrastructure or increased resiliency to make sure that they can get the grid back up as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Definitely seems to be more immediacy to this debate as we wait to see if that wins the approval of Congress. Um, but in the meantime, I did want to ask you, uh, we're, there's a lot of talk about climate action at the local level and then in um, specific policies like the National Mitigation Investment Act. But we haven't been hearing a lot about climate this election cycle, um, this presidential election cycle. Do you have thoughts about sort of why that hasn't been front and center? Well, it. it- hasn't been addressed to the extent that we would like it to, and we're disappointed uh, with that. I, I think it's something that, um, in part, uh, remains, um, you know, torn between two polar extremes. One community, you know, recognizing that um, scientific community has seen climate change, recognizes climate change as a fundamental threat, that it's really irrefutable, uh, and the other camp who continues, I think, to want to work 
with a really old paradigm um, and contend that you know the resiliency of the coal industry or resurrection of the coal industry is the way to go. So I, I think unfortunately the you know much of the media has decided to focus on less important issues, uh, to my perspective. But that doesn't mean that you know there there isn't a lot of work going on. And I think two great examples of that are ballot initiatives. You know, one in Washington State on a proposed carbon tax, another in Florida on um, changing the rules to allow interconnection and more solar onto the grid. So at the state and local level, I think there is a lot of attention that's being paid and voters will have some interesting choices in just two weeks from now. And you mentioned a carbon tax at the state level. Uh, is there any sort of update that that it might be useful to cover in terms of the where we are now on policy for putting a price on carbon at the state or the federal level? Yeah, so at the federal level, there were a number of bills introduced in 2016. Uh, one in particular that we thought was great was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's bill. He's a senator from Rhode Island. There'll be others in 2017. And there's an emerging consensus, we think, uh, among many in Congress that putting a price on carbon is the most economically efficient way to address climate change and drive behavioral change. Also, we're seeing at the federal level that think tanks both on the right and the left are agreeing that a carbon tax is a smart and efficient way to address climate change, maybe even more impactful than regulation. And at the state level, Lauren, what's also been encouraging is to see a number of states, Massachusetts, Vermont, Washington State, Oregon, uh, begin to address this. And bills have actually been introduced in all those legislatures and made good progress in 2016. And we're going to see more of that in um, in 2017. Just Real quickly, one other thought on that is we, the American Sustainable Business Council, just held a program two weeks ago in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on putting a price on carbon. And our focus is always on making the business case for uh, that as a solution to addressing climate change. So we brought in economists, we brought in business leaders from Pax World and Stonyfield Farms, and identified again the serious risk that uh, inaction poses to companies and, you know, the, the, the need for federal and state action. We'll definitely have to stay tuned there. And while I have you, I wanted to ask you quickly about the international stage. So we're a year out almost from the Paris climate talks. Obviously, there's been motion on the Paris climate agreement, and now we're heading into COP22 in Marrakesh. Um, do you have any thoughts you'd leave us with on where we are in the international climate picture? Well, things have happened more quickly than many expected from the Paris meeting in December of 2015. So uh, more than 55 countries now have taken steps to ratify the agreement, which means it becomes effective. And that was quicker than our U.S. State Department expected. So we're really excited about that. Um, myself and other business leaders who went to Paris uh, think it's a great step forward, and it gives the legislative community, um, you know, I think greater impetus to take action because they see that many companies here in the U.S. have adopted their own internal price on carbon, that there's an emerging consensus in the business community among large, medium, and small companies that action is required. So hopefully this 
becomes less and less of a partisan issue and that science prevails. And of course, as is always the case, when businesses speak up, it makes a huge difference in convincing uh, the legislative world that, you know, that, that businesses' views need to be taken into account. Great. Richard Eidlin with the American Sustainable Business Council. Thanks so much for joining us. Good, Lauren. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. I'm sitting in the office just down the hall from the GreenBiz studio of uh, my co-founder and the uh, president, uh, Pete May, uh, from GreenBiz Group. Um, and Pete, you read a great piece this week about a conference you went to, uh, Renewable Energy Marketplace, or REM16, it was called, um, uh, talking about what's going on in corporate energy. Really interesting stuff. First of all, tell us a little bit about what REM is. Um, so REM is an event focused on bringing together kind of critical mass around um, renewable energy. So it's uh, it's the end customers, uh, C&I as they call it, commercial and, and industrial customers, it's utilities, it's developers and service providers and all the folks working in this exciting yet still kind of arcane area of uh, renewable energy, um, cities and public sector folks uh, as well. And it's, it, you said it's arcane, and there you talked about all these acronyms, CCAs and PPAs and VPPAs and TAC, uh, TS, I don't know, just it goes on and on. Do you get a sense that companies are, are able to wade through this thicket of complexity, or or is, is that still a problem? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's one theme that came up often, and I saw more than one hand raised to say, hey, um, you know, it's one thing. There's certainly, certainly leaders in this space. So you look at, you know, the Apples, the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Googles. Um, these are companies that are moving fast and aggressive. Um, because they've set goals and they're and they're pursuing projects, and the third element is they as as more than one hand was raised to mention this is they have the size and the teams and they can master kind of the complexity in understanding uh, PPAs or understanding how if you have a wide swath of retail organizations around the country how you bring them together under um, renewable uh, energy agreement. So I think it's it's e it's it's getting um, you know they're. they're the leaders in this space um, are, are really good at this. The question is, how can, for people in the room and also for us and for the Verge audience, how do we expand uh, this pool of, um, you know, I'd say particularly Fortune 1000 companies? Just, and just a PPA, you mentioned that as the company's chief translation officer, it's a power yep. purchase agreement. Um, <clears throat> well, that's a, I was going to ask you about that because we hear about the same companies over and over. And great companies, Intel, for example, Facebook, Walmart, and Whole Foods, Google, and others that have embraced this in a big way. Apple's another one. But it seems like below that is another 
giant or even bigger swath of companies. Were, were they there, and, and are they part of this conversation? You know, some of some of them were there, but more more need to be in the room. Um, I had a couple of side conversations uh, with some of the service providers who talked about where they see the opportunities, and a couple of interesting um, opportunities. One, um, you know, how do you have renewable energy for, uh, first of all, for for companies or organizations that maybe don't have the needs of a Google, uh, Google or Amazon that have these massive needs with their data centers. Um, one opportunity in particular came up, it, it sounds like there's a large swath of companies, particularly, um, you know, kind of Midwestern manufacturing companies um, that for, that haven't really joined this for, you know, a couple reasons. One, maybe their energy use is um, distributed. It's in different states. It's in different plants, so they can't get the critical mass. Um, Second, as I mentioned, just having the team and the focus to, gosh, how do we, how do you, how do you really go down that path toward renewable energy? And then third, I, I, I don't know what to what degrees this is the market is just kind of education and culture that a predisposition, you know, um, maybe that renewables are don't make sense or too hard to too hard to execute, but. I think the encouraging thing is there's a lot of companies that are really starting to look down this path. You know, it's kind of a it's kind of moves exponentially if you look at and I'm going to botch the numbers here, but the, the number of large companies that are actively pursuing renewable projects, doing renewable projects now, 16. You look at the companies that have made major commitments in this area, uh, about 64, 65, something like that. You look at companies that have signed on to major climate, um, uh, um, uh, major climate commitments, about 150, and then so on down the Fortune 1000. So I, I think the key is expanding those the ladder, the rungs of those latter and getting getting more of those next tier uh, players involved. And of course, there's thousands and thousands of companies. When you get into even just the the, the big and, and mid sized companies, did you come away from this hopeful or not that we can sort of break through the complexity? And uh, and the, the just the various challenges around business models and distributed sites and all that to really uh, that the corporate world really can step up and and make the kinds of not just commitments but follow through with them. How did you come away feeling? Yeah, I came away feeling good in a really grounded way. So there's a couple of things going on. First of all, you know, let's face it, renewable energy is talk to anybody in the solar business these days. Renewable energy is is cheap, and I think it's I think that just the magnitude of that of that affordability is just starting to work its way through the system. The second, and you know, hats off to a lot of our great partners out there in the service provider and renewable energy space. They're starting to do a good job of, of helping companies through this complexity on on PPAs and and getting through that, um, and there's there's more critical mass. The more there's critical mass, the more there is going to be momentum by company and um, and in the aggregate. The last point of optimism is utilities are really understand this as a compelling business need. The the need to offer um, corporations and others viable alternatives in renewable energy, and that is they're really starting to move on that and and offerings. I think we're in the infancy, other forms like green tariffs that utilities are offering in their infancy. There was a lot of talk at the conference. They're not that well developed, but utilities are definitely moving in this space. Moving fast enough, that's the open question, but moving. Lots more to come on corporate renewable purchasing on the pages of greenbiz.com and at our GreenBiz and Verge conferences. Uh, so we'll leave it at that for now. Uh, Pete May, president and co-founder of GreenBiz Group, thanks for a great report out. 
Thanks, Joel. One quick programming note, we've got a busy November coming up when it comes to free webcasts. So on November 1, we'll be looking at renewable energy purchases, not just for the Fortune 100 anymore. On November 8th, closing the gap between risk and sustainability will be the topic du jour. And then on November 15th, we'll turn to scaling success in energy management. So lots coming up there. You can always get information on our events by going to greenbiz.com and clicking the events tab at the top of the page. And while we're talking about next week, uh, keep in mind that the best rate for GreenBiz 17, that's the cheapest rate you're going to get going forward, uh, expires on Friday, November 4th. So uh, check out greenbiz.com for more information about GreenBiz 17 next February in Phoenix and uh, make sure you get the best price you can. And with that, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find links to all the different organizations, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our podcast technical director, Soraya Melconi and Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. It's 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, have a great day.